This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open those up with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 is where we are going to be today. In just a moment, I'll begin reading from verse 13 and down through the end of the chapter. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, we, each Sunday, uh, we sort of begin with some assumptions. Uh, We assume, uh, based on the worldview that the Bible would have us to take on, uh, based on the perspective that the Bible would would have us to to receive, uh, we assume that we you and I are not merely in need of, um, you know, basic help in order to be better people. We assume that we are not on a, a fairly positive trajectory, that if you'll just, you know, kind of give me some here or there, uh, then I'll be able to, to work this thing out. We assume instead that we are utterly broken, uh, even self-deceived in our brokenness if we are left on our own, uh, that we cannot think correctly we don't walk correctly. Uh, we don't go in the right ways or do the right things if left on our own. We, we begin with this as an assumption because this is what the Bible teaches us is the reality for those who live in a fallen world as we do, a post-Genesis 3 world. We also begin with the assumption that it is that we need, uh, that we need God to tell us what's wrong with us, that we need God to correct and shape and instruct us. We begin with the assumption that God's word is not only that which gives us proper instruction, but that it's God's word which gives us life and the ability to even go in the right way. That it's by God's word, through God's word, that that God, by his spirit, uh, enables uh, those who love and trust in and, and, and aim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, enables us to do any of that stuff. So with that in mind, what we're going to be doing today is looking at a passage of Scripture that is a, a thoroughly biblical passage. And what I mean by that is, is we're going to read a passage of Scripture today that essentially is an early Christian, the earliest of Christians, uh, aiming to preach the gospel uh, to, to a, a group of folks. Uh, he's been asked to, to sort of step up and give an account of what the gospel is. And he's going to do that from the Old uh, So from the Old the Apostle Paul is, is being asked to present the gospel or to say a good word, essentially, to this group of folks who are gathered around to think about what the Bible says about different things. And he uses a bunch of Bible, a bunch of Old Testament to the gospel. Now, what that's going to mean is, is that there will be references and allusions to various aspects of the Bible that some of us in the room are, are quite frankly, just not going to understand. I'm going to do my best to kind of walk through and give us a quick summary give a little background and side notes on what is being said in the passage here. But the, the, the God being proclaimed here is it assumes it, 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 um, uh, it, it assumes on the, the part of the audience, a really deep understanding of the old Testament, a familiarity with old Testament stories and characters and storylines. Uh, so we begin with the assumption that, that we need to know these things and therefore uh, this is the, the reason, this is one of the main reasons why we center our focus on God's word every single Sunday morning. 
so this is a sort of a roundabout way to say something that we often will say from this pulpit, and that is that we don't intend to merely be uh, 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 trying to meet felt needs of those uh, who would attend on a Sunday morning. Uh, you may feel that you have all sorts of needs that you don't actually have. Uh, and so we need to be corrected by God's word to know what our needs really are uh, so that God can meet us where we are. I want to I also begin by asking uh, a quick question of you, and that is when you share the gospel with other people that you know, when you're talking to your friends or your family members about Christianity, about Jesus, about who Jesus is and what he does, where do you start that story? Do you start at creation? Do you start at uh, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem? Do you start with your own experiences, your own life? Is that where you begin the story of the gospel? Well, today, as I said, we're going to look at a passage of scripture where that story of the gospel is told. And let's see where this Christian begins the story. Let's see how he tells the story. And let's see what we might learn from it. As I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. I'll begin reading in verse 13 in just a moment. But would you mind standing with me as I read from this passage? We stand up in order to show some respect for God's word while we read the primary passage for the day. So thanks for standing with me if you're able. Acts chapter 13, I'll begin reading in verse 13 all the way to verse 52. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent The message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, 
They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness, through this man, forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you and him. Everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. This lengthy passage comes in the context of the uh, uh, unfolding of the storyline of the book of Acts. And as is uh, typical when we're preaching expositionally through any passage, I'll aim not only to find this main point of the passage itself, but the main point in the context of the overall storyline. The main point, I think, that is being made here in this passage is that the of Christians in the world. Now, this is part of Paul's missionary journey ongoing that began in Acts chapter 13. Uh, but the mission of Christians in the world is the continuation of God's mission in the world from the beginning. And that is to bring sinners into the kingdom of Jesus Christ by his grace through faith. Christian mission is the continuation of God's mission to bring sinners into the kingdom of Christ 
by grace through faith. If you didn't get a chance to write all that down, don't worry, it is printed for you on the inside of your bulletin. And you can refer back there if you would like. And there's also a place in there if you want to write some notes down where you can do that inside your bulletin. There'll be five points to today's sermon, basically just walking through the passage and concluding with observing the Lord's Supper, as I mentioned, we will do at the beginning of today's service. We'll do that in a minute. I mentioned it at the beginning of the service. But let's just start with point number one, looking at the first few verses of the passage. The mission continues, starting in verse 13. Uh, we see that this mission that Paul and Barnabas were on, uh, it's just merely continuing on. They're, they're doing the same thing now that they were doing already on this mission had been called by the Holy Spirit and by the church in Antioch of Syria. So Paul and Barnabas, they were traveling, at least along with John, we're told in the passage that John leaves. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, or actually, this, this will be something that will be important as the story line of Acts unfolds further. So it was at least Paul, Barnabas, and John was tagging along with them uh, for, for a time during this mission. He goes back to Jerusalem, we're told in verse 13. There were some others who were traveling, potentially even Luke at this point is, is writing down the story. Might have been one who was joining the, the missionary uh, trip at, at this point, or maybe he comes along a little bit later and this is the story that he's getting from elsewhere. At, at any rate, there's a, there's a bit of a crew that's all traveling together. Paul and Barnabas, the leaders of this crew. And they had finished their preaching and teaching mission on the island of Cyprus, which is where we read in the early part of Acts chapter 13. And they first arrived, we're told, in verse 13 in Perga. This is a port city that's just kind of on the southern tip of Pamphylia. That's the larger regional area. Uh, Both those names we read in verse 13. Uh, But then Paul and Barnabas, they travel on foot, on donkey. It doesn't say, I don't know. But it's about a hundred mile trip north to this place called Antioch. Now, this is not to be confused with the other Antioch, which they came. This is a different Antioch uh, way over uh, to the east uh, in Syria. This is the Antioch, though, in verse 14 of Pisidia, we're told, this other large region above Pamphylia. Now, the mission continues, and we don't know exactly why they went to this particular town, Antioch in Pisidia. We, we can know that back during the time in which Paul and Barnabas were going there, that in Antioch, this particular Antioch, it was the military and political center of the Galatian province. Uh, that could have been a reason why they went. This is a major town. And so this, is, this was sort of Paul's MO, was to go to major populous areas. Uh, well, also that the, the proconsul, the sort of governor of Cyprus, the place where they preached the gospel before, that it's, he had some, some family there in Antioch. And so maybe there was some connection that Paul and Barnabas were going to tap into. There was also very uh, likely a, a large Jewish population. There was definitely a, a significant Jewish population there. We see they even had influence among the people of the town as Acts chapter 13 unfolds. Any one of these or maybe all of them and reasons for Paul and Barnabas to go, but their primary goal. Uh, so any number of these uh, sort of factors might have played into their decision making as to where they go. But the primary goal in going was to preach and teach the gospel. This is the reason that they're traveling. And this is why in verse 14, we're told that they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. They're going in not merely to be good Jewish boys, but to go in in order to engage with their their brothers, their ethnic brothers, to tell them about who Jesus is and why that's such a big deal for Jews and for Gentiles. And we're told in verse 15 that it's after a reading from the law and the prophets, which is sort of a a shorthand way of referring to the Old Testament, 
Uh, so they're reading from the scriptures in the, 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 in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the rulers of the synagogue were told in verse 15, they send them a message. So these rulers, in some sense, they're, they're the ones who are deciding who talk and who doesn't. Who gets to do some explaining about what the scriptures say and who doesn't? Well, they send them a message in some way asking for Paul and Barnabas, brothers, fellow Jews, fellow descendants of Abraham. If you have any word of encouragement, say it. Imagine that. They're here to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, how Jesus is what the Old Testament has been pointing to all along. Now they're gathered with fellow Jews, Jews and God fearers, you know, Gentiles who are living uh, along with the, the Mosaic covenantal laws in the synagogue. They've just had a reading from the Old Testament. And now they're asked, why don't you get up and tell the folks a little something about what we've just read? Give the folks an encouraging word. Well, this is where the meat of our passage begins, beginning with verse 16, all the way down to verse 37. And this is where point number two of my sermon this morning where the Apostle Paul preaches Christ from the Old Testament. Point number two is going to be the longest point because we're just going to walk through this message that he preaches. And I want you to listen to the way that a New Testament Christian uses the Old Testament to preach the gospel. Listen to the way that the earliest Christians told other people about the good news of Jesus Christ using the Old Testament scriptures. The first he begins, it seems to me in verse 16, is on common ground. He starts by saying, men of Israel and you who fear God. So he's referring to his, his fellow Jewish brothers, those who are of the same ethnicity and, and family lineage as him, sons of Abraham, as he'll use later on, family of Abraham. And he's also referring to those who are God-fearers, uh, likely those who are who are Gentiles by ethnic descent, so non-Jews by ethnic descent, and those who are sort of living as Jews. So they've, they've taken on some of the customs and laws of the Mosaic Covenant in order to, to, to serve and worship the God of the Jews. This is essentially how he begins, is by saying, look, we, we all are worshiping, serving, aiming for the same God. Then verse 17, more common ground. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And there, I think he's referring primarily to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the initial patriarchs uh, that God made covenants with, uh, a covenant that that proceeds on throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Then he goes on and says, and made, so God chose our fathers, probably referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob especially, and made the people, their descendants, great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Now that's a, a euphemistic way of referring to the horrific experiences of the people of Israel in Egypt under slavery for about 400 years. But Paul makes reference to this idea that despite slavery and oppression, the people of Israel grew great in number under the Lord's care. And then he says, continuing on there in verse 17, and with uplifted arm, he, God, led them out of it. So during their time in Egypt, uh, God grew them in number, And then God rescued them from, redeemed them from their slavery there in Egypt, leading them out. Now, this incidentally is a quick summary of the books of Genesis and Exodus, the first two books of the Bible. Then in verse 18, Paul says, and for about 40 years, he, God, put up with them, the rebellious people of Israel, in the wilderness. Now, this is referring to the very opening couple of chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, where the people of Israel refused to go into 
promised land, though they'd been delivered from Egypt in order to go there. And they get to the very edge of it and they get cold feet. Uh, they disbelieve God's promise that they can enjoy the fruit of this land. And so they, they refuse to go in. Well, so what God does is he says, all right, you didn't want to go in. Every adult who was there that day to disbelieve and disobey the word of the Lord, you all are going to wander around in the wilderness as a nation until all of those adults are dead and your children will go in and inherit the land. And that's what he's referring to with this 40 year wilderness trek. Though God judged them by keeping, keeping them out in the wilderness for this time, God preserved them and cared for them. And even fought for them every step of the way. Again, referring to God's care and provision. Then in verse 19, Paul says, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he, God, gave them, the people of Israel, their land as an inheritance. This is the book of Joshua. You can read all about this one verse here, verse 19, throughout the book of Joshua. And then verse 20, the beginning of it says, All this took about 450 years. And so Paul's given a quick summary of uh, the, the first several books of the Bible. And he's talked about how long it's taken from their Egyptian captivity into their inheriting the land of Canaan. He gives a sort of an Old Testament history lesson there. But he doesn't stop there. He continues with this history lesson. He goes on in not only referring to God's giving the people of Israel a land, but God making promises that extend much farther than merely the land of Canaan. And so verse 20 continues after that, after their conquest and the inheritance of the land, he, God, gave them, the people of Israel, judges. Now, these judges mostly defended the people of Israel from their uh, from their attackers uh, on, on the outside. And you can read about these judges in the book of Judges, of course, until the time of Samuel, the prophet. And so Paul says these judges were those who who ruled who, who judged, who led Israel and defended Israel from her enemies until this time where Samuel was raised up as a prophet. Then in verse 21, it was at that time when Samuel became God's prophet, he's referring to, uh, when Israel asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Now, Paul, Paul now is referring back to that time when Israel was first in the land of Canaan, after that time where they had been governed and defended by judges, where now they wanted to have a king, a flesh and blood king like everybody else. And so God gave them Saul. It is important for us to know that Saul was the king of Israel by God's appointment. And Israel asking for a mortal king, a flesh and blood king like everybody else was part of God's intention. It was part of God's design. But we're not to think that Israel was all great during this time. As a matter of fact, this, this raising up Saul as a king is presented as one of, uh, just another one of those opportunities, another one of those occasions, I should say, when Israel demonstrated herself to be rebellious against the God who is, the God who loved and saved and preserved her. So Israel says, we, we don't want the invisible God of all creation to be our king. We want this flesh and blood king like every other nation in the world has. We want to be like the other guys. Verse 22, Paul continues on with this Old Testament history lesson. And he says, when he, God, had removed him, referring to Saul, he, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he, God, testified and said, 
I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, this statement that God made about David came as a judgment against Saul. Saul demonstrated himself to be just the exact kind of king that God warned Israel they would get if they really wanted a flesh and blood king. Which was a bad thing. And so judgment came upon Saul. And God said that, that, that David would be king in Saul's place. David would be the one who was a king after God's own heart. It was another 18 chapters uh, after this proclamation, this judgment against Saul, and this, this declaration that David would be king. Another 18 chapters before Saul died, and another four before David was installed as king. But it's also important to note that this, this statement about David being designated as a man after God's own heart, who will do all of God's will that we see there in the passage. Now, this was said of David in the Old Testament as well, and Paul is just reciting it here. But this does not give a sort of blanket approval to everything David did. It's important to note that because David did some great things, but he also did some really terrible things. You might be interested, interested to know that when the Bible says that this king of Israel was good or that king of Judah was, was bad or vice versa, it's not really saying that this man personally was holy, not per se. Rather, what it's pointing to, the Bible, when it refers to a king as good or bad, is primarily interested in, did this king lead the people of God underneath him toward the worship and service of Yahweh or toward idolatry? That's primarily what the Bible is interested in when it's talking about a good king versus a bad king. And so David, of course, was on the whole a good king, not because he was perfectly holy in himself, but because he generally led the people of Israel toward and service of Yahweh God rather than toward idolatry, which most of the other kings of, of Israel did. At any rate, God did promise that King David uh, was him that one of his own offspring would sit upon an eternal and provide rest for all of God's people. This was one of those promises that was a real it was one of those promises that every little Jewish boy or girl knew that there was a king of Israel whose name was David and someone from his lineage was going to sit on the throne of Israel for forever. Everybody knew that this promise was there. In fact, this was one of the major promises they were looking for being fulfilled in the Messiah or in the Christ that was to come. And Paul, in his preaching of the gospel, in verse 23 he pulls that promise into the present when he says, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So this whole Old Testament history lesson, Paul preaches to them, reminding them of things that they know. He's kind of marching through all the things God has been doing with the people of Israel throughout history. And he says, and remember that promise that God gave to David about an offspring of his that was going to be the leader of his people. God did it. He brought him to us and his name is Jesus. It's at this point in Paul's message when he really takes a turn. He moved from uh, Israel's past toward Israel's future. Or as the way that we would commonly refer to it, he moves from the Old Testament now to the New Testament in our Bibles. And look at verse 24. Before his, before Jesus' coming, John, referring to John the Baptist, 
had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And so Paul is reminding them, hey, we know that this guy, John, was baptizing people in a baptism of repentance, preparing the way for the Messiah, the Christ who was to come. John essentially took his place among a long line of prophets, which God had been sending to his people, calling them to repentance and promising them salvation through God's anointed one, his Christ or his Messiah. And Paul seems to be more than implying that John himself was not the Messiah whenever he quotes what John said about himself in verse 25. So John denies that he was the Christ or the Messiah himself, but rather that he's the forerunner of the Christ, the forerunner of the Messiah. So see, Paul already starting to build his case that Jesus is in fact the Christ. He's turned his attention from the Old Testament. God has been promising all along. To the New Testament, John the Baptist came and he said that immediately after him, there was one coming whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. Implying that it is the Messiah who is coming immediately after John the Baptist. John saying, basically, I'm not the Messiah, but the one who's coming right after me, he is. And he's infinitely greater than I am. But Paul also does not skirt the reality that part of the work that this Messiah would come and do was the rejection of him by the very people that God had been promising his arrival to all along. In fact, it seems to me that verses 26 through 37 are are the climax of Paul's message and probably why he again refers to them in this sort of kindly way. Look again at verse 26. Brothers, fellow Jews, sons of the family of Abraham, And those among you who fear God, once again, probably those God-fearing Gentiles. Certainly, though, this idea of God-fearing was what would cover all of those in his audience. So he's he's kind of, he's turning the attention toward a a very direct and, and, and intimate call to his audience yet again. To us, he says, has been sent the message of this salvation. What salvation? Well, the very salvation that God had been promising through this offspring of David who was to come. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. But what did Israel do with the Savior that God had promised? Verse 27, Paul says, Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. The people of Israel did not receive the offspring of David, the Messiah, the Christ who was to come. They did not receive him as their king, their savior, but rather condemned him. Verse 28, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They arranged not only for his condemnation, his shaming, but his death. Paul doesn't skirt this issue that in real time, the God of the universe sent his one and only son to live as a man in the world. And the very people that God sent his son to save were those who rejected and expressed overt hostility toward him. But this was all exactly as God intended. Paul does indeed place the blame for Jesus' crucifixion 
on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, on Pontius Pilate, as the Apostles' Creed does. Think about the way the Creed goes. Those who were gathered against the Lord Jesus Christ, they deserve the blame for their crucifying the King of glory. And yet, Paul also talks about and points out that these events were exactly as the Scriptures predicted. Look at verse 27. Those who condemned Jesus fulfilled what the prophets had said about him. Those very things that were read every Sabbath. The prophecies that were read out from the Old Testament scriptures every Sabbath were those prophecies predicting that Jesus would come, that he would die, being rejected by his own people. And this is exactly what they did. Verse 29, those who arranged for Jesus' execution they carried out all that was written about him. So yes, of course, they deserve blame. Humanity deserves blame for rejecting the Messiah. But of course, this is God's doing. And what does God, what is God's goal in all of this? How does he use the wicked intentions of humans against the Messiah that he has provided to save guilty sinners like us, what does God do with that? Well, he uses it for his perfectly good ends. In verses 29 and 30, we read that there were those who sought to crucify and kill the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ himself. And when he fully expired, after his body was laid in a tomb, verse 29, God raised him from the dead, verse 30. God's final destination for Jesus was not merely crucifixion upon a cross, was not, was not merely to, to absorb the penalty of his wrath, of God's wrath, on behalf of the guilty sinners, the very ones who were crucifying him. But God's ultimate destination for Jesus was victory through the midst of defeat. God vindicates Jesus as both righteous and true by raising him back to life again. And this was no magic trick or illusion. See how Paul presents it in verse 31. Jesus didn't just appear dead for a little while. And then come back to, to, to show everybody. No everything's fine. He wasn't dead. And then just sort of appeared to be alive. No he really did die. And he really did come back from the dead. Verse 31 says. For many days he Jesus. Appeared to those who had come up with him. From Galilee to Jerusalem, And now these have become his witnesses to the people. So these very ones who came along with Jesus to Jerusalem, who backed away from him when they realized uh, Jesus is going all the way to the cross with this thing. They abandoned him in his death. But then when Jesus is back to life again, they're revived. They're, they're brought new life, new, new boldness to be his witnesses to say that same Jesus who was crucified that we abandoned. He's been raised from the dead and we're his witnesses to say to everybody everywhere. This is the Christ. Paul and Barnabas then take on themselves in verses 32 to 37. That very role of being witnesses to Jesus Christ. Witnesses of Jesus Christ. Paul says we bring you. So now he's. He's turning this from a, a, a practical uh, reality that's true everywhere to a very practical, pragmatic, and real reality that's true for you right here, right now. We bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, 
he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Now, we don't have time to look up each of these Old Testament citations, but essentially Paul quotes three Old Testament prophecies, which he argues have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ in those following few verses there, citing Psalm 2, Psalm 16, and Isaiah 55. Now, that's Paul's presentation of the gospel before he gets to the real closing statement. But before we get to that, we want to the reality that the New Testament writers and the earliest Christians, they did not see themselves as inventing a new religion. Think about how Paul just preached the gospel. He, he pulled all the way back from the very beginning of the scriptures, the Old Testament, saying, look, this is, this is what God has been doing all along. They believed, these earliest Christians, that they were witnessing the climax of God's plan of redemption, which had been a part of his promises for centuries. The earliest Christians did not leave the Old Testament behind. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures were the only scriptures they had until the apostolic letters and the gospels of Jesus' life and ministry began to be circulated 15 or 20 years later. To say the scriptures in Paul's mind during this particular era that we're reading about in Acts 13, there were not yet any New Testament documents to refer to. Now, this reality should have a huge impact on the way that we treat and read our Bibles today, I argue. We should not, as some Christians would have us do, unhitch from the Old Testament. Nor should we use the Old Testament as merely uh, moralistic proverbs or stories about characters that we ought to emulate. Now, certainly there are, uh, there are examples of, of good men and women and examples of bad men and women in the Old Testament. But this is not their primary use. We should see the Old Testament, I think, more like a field full of Jesus-shaped treasures that are all around. And that most of which are, are right there on the surface if we'll just merely use our New Testament lenses to look for them. In fact, hearing how Paul preached the gospel from the Old Testament this morning, I think should also have a huge impact on the way that we talk about the gospel with our family and our friends. We should probably talk less about how Jesus can meet people's felt needs, unruly children, broken marriages, financial troubles, and more how the divinely promised and ancient Messiah who lived and died and conquered death, how he provides justification and forgiveness of sins for guilty sinners like us. We should probably talk less, I think, about my personal savior and more about the king of the universe who is the judge of all mankind and the savior of those who turn from their sin and pledge their total allegiance to him. We should probably talk less about building or rebuilding a Christian nation and more about the kingdom which Christ himself is building throughout the entire world, not based on geographical borders, military power, or political advance, but rather by the preaching of the gospel and the conversion of sinners. This is how the gospel is proclaimed right here for us today. I told you point two was going to be the longest, and it was. We're going to speed up the pace a little bit and now look at this way that Paul closes his message on that Sabbath morning where he gives an invitation and a warning. This is point number three, an invitation and a warning. Looking especially at verses 38 to 41. Paul concludes his message by laying out the two options. He lays out the two options and he calls for his audience 
to receive complete forgiveness of sins, freedom, justification before God, and all this simply by believing or trusting or having confidence in the reliability of the message Paul proclaimed. But Paul also warns his audience that there is no place for neutrality. Essentially, he says, you guys have heard the message. Now you must respond. The first response we see is in verses 38 and 39. This, this first uh, invitation or, or call to respond. Verses 38 and 39. Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. Now, Paul goes into a greater explanation of what he means by this statement here in Galatians 3, for example. He, he goes in, into uh, an explanation elsewhere in the New Testament. But the idea here is that the Old Testament was never meant to promise anyone justification or freedom uh, based on the following of these laws. But that the Old Testament, in fact, the Mosaic covenant to be specific, the, the, the covenant that God made through Moses with the people of Israel at Sinai, this was meant always to be a typological or shadowy depiction of our desperate need for a savior. It was meant to show people just how guilty and sinful they are and to show how God in the end is going to provide for the satisfaction of his own justice. And Paul says then that there is forgiveness of sins through this man, this Jesus. And everyone who believes or trusts or entrust themselves to him is freed or justified by him. Now, friends, this is Paul's invitation. This is the biblical invitation to respond to the gospel by believing in Jesus and receiving forgiveness through or by him. It's been a while, but, uh, you know, I've sometimes been criticized for not giving an invitation on Sunday mornings. And I just want to argue, I give an invitation every single Sunday. I give the exact same kind of invitation the Apostle Paul is giving right here in this passage. In fact, I'm doing it right now. I'm calling you, like the Bible calls you, to believe. I'm not asking you to come down here and shake my hand or to say some special prayer somewhere. I'm asking you, in fact, I'm urging you to believe the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust yourself to that one Messiah that God has provided for guilty sinners like us. That he's been promising all along and that he has given in Jesus. And that there is one and only one hope that we have to be justified before God. To be freed from our guilt and shame. To be freed from the penalty of our sin. And that is to trust in this one who has provided the once and for all sacrifice for sinners like us. The gospel invitation is believe. Trust yourself to him. But there is a warning here also. And the warning is death. Look at verse 40. Paul says, beware. Watch out. Take care. But beware of what? Well, Paul says, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he cites in verse 41, a verse of a prophetic judgment against the people of God during a time right before a hostile pagan nation came in and destroyed them. If you want to read about this, you can see it in, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. That's the specific 
citation that Paul is making here. But the message is clear to the people in front of him that day. God's judgment is coming. But this time, the dividing line of safety is not some geographical border. It's not the nation state of Israel. The dividing line of safety is, do you believe? Do you trust in? Do you give yourself over to, pledge allegiance to the one and only Savior that God has provided for us? Or do you reject him? Will you believe the message of the gospel? Or will you scoff at it? Will you disbelieve it? Will you go on about your day as though you had never heard the message of salvation through judgment? Essentially, Paul's options are belief equals forgiveness of sins, justification, and life. Unbelief equals sin remains, guilt remains, and death is imminent. Well, how did the crowd respond? We see their response beginning in verse 42. Point number four, there are two responses. The two responses are essentially blasphemy and belief, but we see it starting in verse 42. Now, as they, Paul and Barnabas, went out, they finished this preaching message, and they went out from the synagogue, the people, uh, assuming uh, probably that the people there at the synagogue, begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath day. And Paul and Barnabas apparently had some conversations with various Jews and, and God-fearers uh, as, uh, after the, the meeting left off. That's verse 43. But the next Sabbath day came, in verse 44, and we're told, in verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is a pretty impactful message that they preached, a pretty significant truth they were proclaiming. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what they said in this next Sabbath day sermon that was being preached or maybe beginning to be preached. Uh, but it's most likely they preached the same exact kind of thing they preached this, the Sabbath before. And the first response we see is there in verse 45. Some in the crowd reviled or blasphemed Paul as he preached. Now, the Greek word underneath there means to blaspheme or insult or slander or to speak profanely of sacred things. We're told also in verse 45, they were arguing with him, aiming to contradict what he was saying. Luke says that they were filled with jealousy there in verse 45, but whatever their motives, they were overtly hostile to the message of the gospel. Now, Luke tells us that this response that was uh, the result of the preached message, uh, that it was not only due to the hard-hearted people in the crowd that day, but that it was also part of God's design in Israel's continued rejection of the Messiah, God's, uh, God's uh, uh, offering the Messiah to the people of Israel, their rejection of him, and then God's outstretched arms to the Gentiles. This is all part, part of God's unfolding plan of saving people for uh, the glory of his name. Uh, we don't have time to really delve into that. If you want to get into bit, that a bit more, we started to do that at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. I went into that a bit more. If you want to uh, listen to that sermon, you can, or we can talk about this at some other time. But we want to recognize that that there is, or there's more going on here than the mere rejection of the gospel, but there's not less than that. So let's key in on that for a moment. Some sinners do hear the message of the gospel and they hate it or they disbelieve it or they simply reject it. They don't always show overt hostility, but sinners reject God's authority over them in Jesus Christ all the time. Sometimes they do this 
by just ignoring the gospel that they've heard. The message of the gospel comes to their ears and they just pretend like it's not true. They live as though it's not true. They live as though this world is all there is. The pursuit of the things of this world is all that I want. And it doesn't really matter at the end of the day whether or not I sin. We probably know people like this all around us. Even those who would proclaim to be Christians, those who would say that they are loving and trusting and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And nevertheless, they live as those who utterly reject the gospel. Not by not by saying it out loud, I hate Jesus, but by living their lives as though Jesus really didn't do anything. As though God really doesn't judge sinners. But the second response we see in our passage this morning is not one of blasphemy and unbelief but rather of joy and belief. Now, we're told in this passage that most of the Jews, certainly the leading Jews in Antioch, were hostile to the gospel. But when the Gentiles, verse 48, in Antioch, heard that the message of salvation was also for them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And we're told in verse 48 that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And I think it's important to highlight this morning the difference between those who were hostile and unbelieving sinners and those who were rejoicing and believing sinners. Both the Jews and the Gentiles in Antioch were guilty sinners before God. Both people groups had heard the message of the gospel from Paul and Barnabas that day. And yet some responded with blasphemy. They hated the message and hated the messenger. While others believed it and rejoiced because of it. And what does Luke, what does the scripture tell us was the deciding factor in who blasphemed the message and the messenger and who praised God and believed the message and the messenger? Was it the Jews that were less religious than the, than the Gentiles? Were the Gentiles more humble or in tune with God's spirit than the Jews? No, Luke doesn't attribute belief in the gospel to any of that stuff. Luke simply says that those who believed were those who were appointed to eternal life. Verse 48, appointed by whom? Appointed graciously by God, of course. Who else could appoint eternal life but the giver of eternal life? Friends, salvation, including repentance and faith, is a gracious gift of God. And we see that come up again and again throughout the scriptures. Now, this is both humbling and I think emboldening news for us today. It's humbling because we can all know that if we are believing ones this morning, it is not uh, that has nothing to do with us being better or more deserving or more lovable than anybody else. It is all God's grace. If you or I are believing this morning, recipients of God's gracious grace, it is grace. It is nothing in us. That's humbling. It's also emboldening because we can know that there is no such thing as a sinner that's too hard hearted to receive God's grace. Because after all, God is the one who appoints people to eternal life. And it doesn't matter how hard their heart might seem to you or me. As Jesus said about this very reality, about who can enter into the kingdom of Christ, his disciples asked him. And Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. There is no hard heart too hard for God to 
change it, to transform it. Well, those who opposed the gospel when Paul was preaching it, they continued to oppose it after that specific instance. And even when many people throughout the region received it with joy and belief, they continued to oppose it. But that did not hinder the Christian mission at all. And that's where we see this passage conclude. So point number five, the very last bit, the very last two verses, verses 51 and 52. The passage really ends where it began. Paul and Barnabas ending where they began. They had arrived in Perga and Pamphylia in verse 13 with the goal of preaching and teaching the message of Jesus Christ. Then they went up to Antioch of Pisidia in verse 14, again, aiming to preach and teach the gospel. And when they left Antioch, being driven out by those who rejected the message, Paul and Barnabas went to Iconium with the exact same goal to keep preaching and teaching the gospel in verse 51. Now, we also see this interesting aspect, this phrase of verse 51. They shook off the dust from their feet against them. Once again, this is an an Old Testament illusion. This shaking off the dust of their feet is is a, a sign of judgment that's rooted in Jewish history. It was also the same sign of judgment, incidentally, that Jesus told his disciples to demonstrate to anyone who did not listen to their message of repentance during during his earthly ministry. Now, basically, though, this this sign indicates, you know, we've done our part. If God's judgment falls on you, it's all on you. You've heard the message. But we're told in verse 52 that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure uh, which disciples Luke is referring to. Is he referring to the disciples, Paul, Barnabas, and their group that went on to Iconium? Were they rejoicing, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit? Is he referring to those disciples that had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ there in Antioch, that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit? Is he referring to both? I'm not sure. Maybe both, uh, maybe one or the other. But nevertheless, we do see that disciples, either ones that are departing, ones that are staying, both having received persecution and, and steep hostility from the, uh, many of the leaders of the city there in Antioch, uh, we're seeing them filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, despite the overt hostility and persecution they were receiving. Now, I want to know, how did they do that? How was it that they could be so joy-filled despite this response that it seems they were getting? Well, one factor in this is right there in verse 52. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Christ, which produces in Christians joy that is otherworldly, that transcends the circumstances of life. But this is really true of of every Christian. Uh, What did they know? What did they understand? What perspective did they have that gave them the ability to have joy in the midst of this hostility they were receiving there in Antioch? even as they traveled on to Iconium to preach and teach again. Well, I think that they knew the message they proclaimed was not merely a message of personal conversion to Jesus, though it was certainly that. I think they knew that the gospel wasn't just a promise that Jesus saves souls, though, of course, it is that. But they knew that the message they preached was the story God had been telling from the very beginning and that God's story has a final destination. Not just the conversion of individual sinners, but the entire rejuvenation of the whole world. Heaven on earth is the destination which God is moving this whole storyline. 
And they knew that this was the destination to which this whole thing is headed. Christians of every age and Christians in any circumstance can indeed rejoice because Jesus has died for us, because he has conquered death for us, because he has freed us and justified us before a holy God. And because though he has gone for a while, he is returning one day to make all things new. And we know that day is coming so we can rejoice through the midst of any circumstances. And Christians of every age can join with these earliest Christians in the mission of God in the world to keep on proclaiming that good news that there is a savior for guilty for guilty sinners until he comes. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.